that's what I need. I don't need them to be more competitive and fighting against each other and thinking this we're in the onesies and only one person can be successful. We spend a lot of time talking about social capital and that entrepreneurship is a team sport and that you know you got to look out for each other and and that's what I care about. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Look, we all know too well that when it comes to starting a business, the playing field is not level for everybody. Luckily, there are people out there who are committed to changing that and making a tangible difference. Our guest today is one of those people. Melissa Bradley is the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an accelerated firm focused on overlooked and underserved entrepreneurs, including black and Latino men and women. Melissa brings more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. She served as an appointee under multiple presidents, and she is an adjunct professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Today, I'll talk to Melissa about 1863 Ventures' mission, what she learned working for two different presidential administrations, and of course, deal-making. Welcome, Melissa. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Pleasure to be here. I'm going through your bio. I'm going through your LinkedIn. I'm reading some articles. We sat on a panel together in New York City, and all you do is just the Hamptons, drop knowledge. Brother, the Hamptons. Don't be saying New York City. It was the Hamptons. <laughs> so I, didn't, I didn't want to tell everybody exactly where we Keep were. It real. But yes, Keep it real. Fine. We were in the Hamptons. We are in a very nice place, and the weather yes. was beautiful. I yes, was wearing was. my cowboy hat, and yes. you were just dropping knowledge. I appreciate that. <laughs> I try to use every venue possible to leave an impact, whether they want it or not. That's something my mom taught me. Well, I'll tell you this much. Everybody that was there just had some amazing takeaways. And I think it's, I mean, obviously it's just based upon your history and your overall experience and your time within the overall industry. Let's just take it back because, you know, as I've combed through and seen some of the things that you've done, I mean, you were doing VC work back when hardly anybody was really talking about it. That's right. And you were supporting people back when nobody was really talking about it because the fact that you were actually in it and involved in that. If I were to go one step past that and allow you to arrive at the moment where you decided to get involved in VC work, yeah. what was that and why? It was a very, it was probably all of about 30 minutes. I was, uh, I graduated from Georgetown, undergrad as a finance major. I had decided that I was ready to leave my full-time job and I wrote a business plan and took it to the Small Business Administration. And I was there to ask for a loan. And I had dropped it off. It was back in Kinko's. It was spiral bound, clear cover. It was high wait, wait, for, for those that don't know what Kinko's is. Now it's FedEx <laughs> online. But there used to be these places where you would go and they would photocopy things for you. And you know you could rent by 10 cents a minute on, the, on a laptop or, or computer. And so they put it in spiral bound. And you know there was no email. And I dropped it off. And I went back. The following week, and literally had a 30-minute appointment, and I said, okay, you're going to give me a loan for my business? And she says, no. And I was like, huh, well, what's wrong? And because I was like, I knew my numbers. And she was like, well, there's three strikes. There's three challenges. I was like, oh, well, if there's only three, like, let's just knock them out right now. Like, I, mm. I got my little laptop for what it was then. And she goes, well, you're black. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, where is this going? And then she goes, well, you're a female. And I was mm. like, I can change that, but I'm not trying to. 
And then she said, I don't know any black women who are successful in financial services. And that's how long ago it was because it wasn't fintech. And I was like, wow. And, you know, this was a corporate executive who was retired and she got to make the decision. And and I realized then I was like, this is a mess. And Mm -hmm. so when I left the building and I came down my 14 floors, I said, if I ever get in a position so that no one who looks like me ever has to go through this again, I want to be able to do that. And when I had the chance to have an exit and really think about giving back and becoming an angel investor and then having a VC firm, I was laser focused on there is amazing talent that exists in the black and brown community, but it is underfunded and therefore it is missing out on additional wealth creation opportunities. And if I could be helpful, that's what I wanted to do. It's oftentimes, and I've said this time and time again, the breeze of opportunity can come from any direction. You just have to be sensitive enough in order to recognize it. But even when you recognize it, and even when someone just basically just tells you to your face, sometimes people just pass it off because they may not necessarily be ready. Were there some seminal moments that allowed you to be ready for that time that gave you the confidence to kind of move forward? I mean, you you mentioned the exit you had in, in your business. Maybe it was the financial stability that you had. I'd imagine there is a bunch of mentors along the way that kind of gave you the strength, if you will, because, you know, when you're a person that doesn't feel supported, oftentimes that shaky ground doesn't give you the optimum sort of mental uh, agility to say yes. That's right. That's right. We we become our own glass ceiling, right? Mm. And and I think there there were two moments. One is that when I was growing up, I grew up in a single parent house. I remember my mom getting, I'm not even sure why, but it was this like big ass poster of all the U.S. presidents. And I said to her, I was like, there ain't no women, ain't no black people. And she goes, not yet. And I was like, huh, you think it's going to happen? She goes, I believe it will one day. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, you've got more experience than I do. And so, but she taught me that anything is possible. And then when it came to the tactical part, I had a college roommate, she was in law school and I was thinking about starting my business. She's like, girl, I got you. If you can't make rent one time or another, I got you. Luckily, knock on wood, I always made rent. But you're right, just knowing that one, my mom or somebody was close to me said, you can do anything, despite what the world said. And two, that in those meaningful moments of whether it was like, help me not eat ramen again tonight, or help me cover the rent, you got me. And, and I think those were two important things because you know, starting a business is all about risk tolerance. And I think we as, as the black community are mindful of if you ain't got a lot, it's hard to risk it all. Mm-hmm. And two, I think because of capitalism, we're forced into this world where we are, our roots tell us we are about community. But in America, we're all about competition. We oftentimes don't look out for each other. And so those were two fundamental things that, that really shifted for me. And so you, you took those moments, you had this conversation at Kinko's. I love that. <laughs> it, it, people are now like typing into Google search. Or they're it's typing like the last blockbuster on earth. It's like, are these, there a Kinko's? Yes. They're Thank like, you. what is this thing called Kinko's? I'm so confused about what that actually is. You took those moments and then you were able to move that forward. Which part came first? Was it, you know, Project 500 or was it getting a call from Clinton I mean, all these things that you've had in your life, you just kind of list them out. You have president's numbers in your phones. They call you. So it's a lot for anybody to be able to kind of be in a room with the president, let alone, you know, they're on speed dial. I'm not going to go that far, but I know how to reach him <laughs> if I need it. It was a sequential set of steps. You know, after I started my company, which ended up being successful, and we had an exit. I decided to start a nonprofit to help young people understand entrepreneurship. And we work specifically in public housing. Because there was a policy that said you could have your own business in public housing and it not count 
against any kind of federal support or state support you got from a financial perspective. So mm. in blunt terms, you could still get welfare while you were trying to stand up your business. And so for three to five years, we spent in starting in D.C. and then all over the country uh, and even went international helping low-income families think about how to use entrepreneurship as a tool. And many people would say with success, I found it to be a complete failure and be completely honest with you. People started businesses, folks got off of welfare, but it only did that because we recreated all the systems. So we had a training program, which should have been school. We had a loan fund. We had a grant fund. We had a venture capital fund. And I, one day I was like, why am I doing the work that America should be doing? Okay. And so I realized we had forced success, but if we weren't there, that wasn't good enough, like, because I'm not always going to be there. And that actually thrust me into the policy arena. And so I started by working for the Department of Treasury with, with President Clinton. And that was an amazing experience because I went in wanting to start a bank, thinking that would solve the problem. I was quickly mistaken uh, once I understood all the regulatory requirements and, and things and said, okay, well, let me not start a bank. What else can I do? And that then took me in the space of, of venture capital and and investing in individuals and really wanted to also explore how the three sectors come together, the public, the private, and the social. I had an opportunity to become a CEO of a very large foundation thinking, hey, if I could give money away, would that actually begin to solve things and, and realize that racism is alive and well in the philanthropic community? And so that wasn't going to work. And then got a call to work for Obama. And, and I wasn't going to do it, but my mom, who, who now is 94, said, if you do not go work for this black man, I'm going to be mad at you because this may never happen again. And so I took the job, and uh, it was an amazing experience. I started with the uh, Corporation for National Community Service as Chief Strategy Officer, which is now AmeriCorps. And then I ended up going over to the Department of Education and had the privilege to work on My Brother's Keeper. Uh, and then my last assignment was running the White House Social Innovation Fund. And, and when I finished there, I walked out saying, I am done serving presidents. But I will say that there were two big takeaways. One, that I truly believe when we're going to talk about systemic change, it has to have a policy implication. Mm -hmm. And two, unfortunately, once healthcare was passed, the people remember there were no other laws passed, Obama, because the, the House and Senate refused to move. And so I quickly learned how do you create a culture within an institution that allows change to be permanent, because that's exactly what we had to do during his administration. Wow. I mean, the fact that someone had to convince you to go work for Obama... <laughs> I mean, I think that's it's a, a soundbite in and of itself. But it's a pay cut, man. I had finally like, you know, hit, hit a- You're hit serving a, your country. You're fuck. serving your people. I had served my country, brother. I served under Clinton. That was a lot of serving right there. I had served. But, but you know, I want to be honest. I mean, I think, trust me, I, I don't say that I, it was an amazing honor, but I'm married. I got six kids, man. Like, that's a real- Oh, oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to that because that's a that's a whole segment. I mean, unpacking <laughs> six kids and, um, and two administrations and and an exit in a business and and just running parts of the government. I mean, that's that's a heavy weight to carry. And it was a responsibility, but I think it was a responsibility I put on myself. At one point, my wife said to me, "I believe that President Obama goes to his girls' basketball games. Can you not come home one time?" And I'm like, "No, he gets to go to the girls' basketball games because he knows." <laughs> Our dumbasses are sitting there working all night. I think part of that is a responsibility. I, I want to be mindful because I think, respectfully, we as black people have a lot of burdens. And I think that we grow up, we have to be 150% better than somebody else. I think for me, I just want to be thorough and, and I want to be mm. successful and not just for myself, but for my community, right? I'm on a goal, on a mission to create $100 billion of new wealth by new majority entrepreneurs by 2030. I need to keep it going. Like I need to have the pedal to the metal and move and take advantage of every opportunity that I can. What do you mean by be thorough? Because I think a lot of times, you know, people start things, maybe they don't finish things, maybe it, they're just right in the middle of it and they just put it away. They might move on to something else. That's my definition of what 
being thorough might be. But when you said thorough, I saw a little twinkle in your eye because then it kind of went right into your $100 billion of wealth later on in the future. So what does being thorough mean to you? Somebody said to me when I was growing up is that you only get this chance at life one time. So be really clear what your destination is. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of time and a lot of opportunity just by going around in circles and making Mm. U-turns. And so for me, I have that goal, right? I really want to bring wealth to the black community. Other than me not having it when I was growing up, I'm not sure what the driver is, but I truly believe that's what my God-given gift is, is to really figure that out. And so being thorough means being intentional, not getting sidetracked, staying focused, following things through, even if I totally screw up, following things through, learning from my mistakes, telling people, other people what they should be doing and how they can join along and just seeing it through. And so, you know, for me, if we don't make $100 billion, that's okay. But the fact that we're having people even have that conversation, which they never would have equated for us, it's really putting something out there, a big goal, creating a signal effect and saying, let's all drive, not to it, but let's drive through it. Mm. $100 billion would be very nice. It would be. It would what be. would you what? do if someone gave you $100 billion right now? Man, I would really think about how to invest it and create a perpetual vehicle because I think there's ebbs and flows in the economy where people of color are going to struggle. And so we need to think about how do we have longitudinal wealth building opportunities. I think I would pay off my student debt and that of my my family. I think my mom, who is now 94, I would send her on whatever vacation wow. she'd want to be before she turns 95. And then I'd go back to work the next day. I mean, it, I'm not done. I'm not done. Well, you were in the midst of AmeriCorps and then also working as a National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Did you ever think that this sort of notion of being thorough and reaching these goals of $100 billion would be on the horizon for yourself? No. I think once I got out of high school, I was very clear that I wanted to make a lot of money so that I could help other people make a lot of money. That has been a through line for a long time. I, I didn't even know that there was a such thing as the National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Right? I, I didn't know anything about billions until way after graduation. So I think the beauty has been is that as I have grown and, and elevated my understanding I have allowed my vision and desires to grow with what I now understand we have the capacity to do. Mm. And what what was the the biggest business that you saw come out of some of the capital that you've contributed when, and I didn't even know that this program actually existed. You know, if you had low-income housing and and you were starting a business, like Mm. I had no, no idea. What was the biggest business that came out of that? Or, you know, you said it wasn't necessarily a success, but I imagine because you actually put the germ of an idea in someone's mind that never probably even thought that they could, that for them it was a success. So for those that you came across and you worked with, what would you say that they said was the biggest deal that happened? I think the one that comes to mind, and unfortunately now in, in the district as many places, all public housing has been destroyed But the biggest one was that they took a part of the community center and turned it into a store. You know, there are no grocery stores in most poor Mm. neighborhoods, uh, not even just black ones, just poor neighborhoods. And we had none. And in this part of town, Southeast D.C., particularly Ward 8, there would be a white truck. And I would say, what's up with that white truck? And it was selling toilet paper. It was selling juice. It was selling milk. It was selling cereal. And I'm like, and at first I was like, oh, that's cool. It comes to you. But then when I saw the quality, I was like, oh, this is just jacked up. Like, this is just predatory at best. And no one from the community was in charge of that venture. And so we petitioned to the commission and the housing authority and said, hey, we want to carve out a spot. And first they wanted it to be 
kind of like a food pantry. And I was like, people don't need no food pantry. Like they got money, like let's send the right signal effect. They have capacity to have a store. It's just the big chains have decided this is not a worthy place to be. And so they ended up really setting up kind of this mini grocery store, I'd say almost like a 7-Eleven type thing as part of the association for the housing development. And it was great because the white truck went away, which was mm-hmm. predatory at best. It created jobs because people in the community, part of it was you had to work there and that's how you got a discount. So it was a little bit of cooperative, but it just fundamentally changed the way people came together. That we were no longer fighting and racing for that truck to get that last thing in toilet paper like we did at COVID. It was like, hey, this is part of our community. Let's all take care of it. And that was huge because the elders kept saying, we tired of these little rug rat kids running through trying to rip and run, but now the kids were actually employing. They ultimately, mm. after we left, started a delivery service to the people who could not get out. So did it make a lot of money? Eh, it made some, but did it fundamentally transform the mindset of what was possible in that community and how it was not a competitive situation that we're all in the same situation together? That, to me, was probably the biggest takeaway. Were there some people that sort of walked up to you after it was created and say to say thank you? Oh, absolutely. I see people now. And they go, hey, you're the Teddy lady, because the program was called the Entrepreneurial Development Institute. And I go, wow. Like, even I think it was like last month, I was like, yo, you're the Teddy woman. I was like, whoa, like, okay. And so it's cool because to see most of the kids now adults who reach out and say, hey, I got kids. We have a family business. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. Because I think a lot of times it's not only just where you start, but it's being able to kind of layer upon that foundation to create an even bigger house. That's right. Right. A lot of times people say, well, I got I got to create a big house. But if you don't have a big foundation, you can't create a big house because it's going to fall down. Right? right. Even if you just build on slab, that that slab's got to be pretty big. And so that moment that you gave an opportunity for people to actually see what they could accomplish, they actually got out of the low income housing yeah. and they actually found their own single family house. so to speak, or they were able to see somebody with their single family house. And as we continue to grow through, you know, diversified founders, being able to see other people that have done it, see other people that look like you in that industry starts to compound and then you can get to that hundred billion. So I'd imagine that somebody in that group is doing really big things now or telling the stories to somebody that now feels enabled to do so. And I think that the timing is also critical and the timing is also important because this was Pre, this is oh, this was way this, this was pre COVID. This, this is yeah. back in the day. Just give yeah, me some context. Like nobody was talking about this. So no, how did you convince people when they didn't even see it as we even see it now today? Yeah, to put it in context, I mean, this was the '90s, and and I had volunteered at a program while I was at Georgetown as a student with young people who had come out of the system or had been impacted by the system. And I watched these brothers; they were all guys. Tell me, like, I can't get a job. But there was one young woman and she just kept having babies. And I'm going, what is wrong? And I did my normal, like, well, I don't understand. We all can't get it. Why can't y'all be on time? And then I, they invited me over and I was like, ah, I get it. Like, the, like nothing is, there was nothing bad about it, but like they were always late because there wasn't a clock that worked and there was nobody to call because who cares about housing development, right? Mm-hmm. That's a low priority on, on, the, on the totem pole. I would say, well, what do your parents do? What do your grandparents do? They all live there. No one had an opportunity. So you can't see what you can't, you can't be what you can't see. And so mm-hmm. I think for us in the 90s, there was a lot of like, midnight basketball. And we took advantage of that. We're like, okay, well, if, if the housing developments are open, you're doing midnight basketball, I'm going to do 10 p.m. entrepreneurship. Like we were there at night. And because I was like, not everybody's going to play ball. And you have too many people in the crowd, you start seeing fights and other kind of stuff popping off or people just not using their time wisely. And so we really had a moment in time of that legislation by Jack Kemp, by momentum that people were beginning to put some resources, you know, refurbish community rooms, et cetera, to make sure there was something for folks to do. And we had this new generation saying, like, I want to get out of here. 
Mm-hmm. Like it is clear to me that this is a place that's not invested in me. And so we took a, you know, we would show up in the middle of the night and we'd have volunteers that were like, oh, I ain't coming back next week because I told my dad where I went. And he was like, you are not allowed over there. But we were there. We got caught in crossfire. We were ducking sometimes. We were, you know, had called the police to escort us out. We had brothers come and say, let me, let me make sure you're good. But it was worth it because this was the community that was in most in need most interested and to me most likely to succeed that nobody else was going to show up for. Mm. Wow. And oftentimes it just takes that one person that's willing to go through the crossfire right. to find the person that's going to protect you with their own bulletproof vest right. because they see the potential. They just need someone else to come in and help them. And so, so you've kind of made your way or cut your teeth in rigorous and grit filled environment and, for those that don't know a little bit about Project 500, give me a little bit of semblance of the background of that because the business development and working through scaling and, and revenue and why that's so important yeah. and how that was transformational, even in your own personal growth. Yeah. So it's interesting. Once in 2016, because as a professor, I always take students during the summer and try to get them internships, but doing things that are impactful. And so I always get my friends who run organizations saying, like, I need a business plan. I need this. And then I have them come up with their own project. And so the group of nine students said, we want to do an entrepreneurship forum in Ward 8. And I was like, Mm. great, put it together. Put it together. We figured it'd be two days, you know, one day of sessions, next day sessions, then it'd be a pitch competition where people from the community got to vote on what businesses deserve to be in their community. And we raised 5,000 bucks. I met a guy on a panel the week before. I was like, hey, you guys got any sponsorship money? So Comcast wrote a check for $5,000. That was it, right? We worked with the city. We got, you know, it was a straight up hustle. Gets free space. We had 147 people the first day and 167 people the second day. I only know that because we ran out of food. And I'm like pulling money out of my pocket. Like, yo, y'all got to go get some chicken. Y'all got to go to the store. You got to go get some bagels. Like, I mean, it was was a madhouse. But what happened was people said, nobody's ever come over here and given us this opportunity. But we also found an amazing amount of entrepreneurs. And so after that, we said to the to the mayor's office, look, you're doing a lot of these small grants, but there are like real businesses east of the river who need bigger chunks of money. Mm. And she said, well, you find me 500, which is how we got Project 500, I'll think about changing the policy. And we gave ourselves three years, 18 months, we found 527 people. And we went to the city and we said, okay, we found them. She goes, how the hell do you find them? I said, well, we got up off our ass. We went to the community. We knocked on doors. We talked to people. We built a relationship. So what are you going to do? And then she created a council that I was on. And fast forward right now, the District of Columbia has its first venture capital fund. And we were selected in a competitive process to be that fund administrator. So most states have their own funds, but the district never did that. And so we finally have our own fund. But when that weekend was over, people said, what are you going to do now? And I was like, well, I'm going back to teach. And they were like, well, no, you didn't start something. And so Project 500 has now morphed into 1863 Ventures, where we do business development. To your point, we don't focus on pitching because money is the means to an end. You got to know what you're doing first. Mm-hmm. And so you got to know who you're going to hire. You got to know who your customers are. You have to have a financial plan. You've got to have a marketing strategy, customer acquisition. What's your corporate culture? So we spend a lot on how to move somebody from founder to CEO. And then we've got two venture funds that we can invest in them to really help their businesses grow. And so Project 500 now became this institution that is no longer just working east of the river, but now working across the United States and even in Toronto and and in parts of Africa. And what have you seen as some of the biggest challenges of working with Project 500? Or what have you heard from people that you didn't realize was such a big issue in administrating some of this capital and working with some of these founders? 
You know, I think the, the biggest on, on the investor LP or foundation side was, do you really think black businesses can get that big? And I was like, yeah, I, I do. And I think internally, imposter syndrome is real. You know, a lot of these entrepreneurs don't believe they have the capacity to make over a million bucks. They go into it as like, well, this is like a little side hustle. I'm like, yeah, but if you just do like these three things, you could actually get to half a million. Mm. You could get to a million. And again, they can't, they haven't seen it. I mean, I didn't meet my first fellow black CEO till after I sold my company. And I'm like, where the hell you been all my life, brother? And so I think part of it is really just making sure they understand that, like my mom did, anything is truly possible, but there is a path. Like you can't just like be willy nilly about it. And you can't just say, you know, let me throw up a social media account. Like it doesn't work that way. But if you're really interested, this truly can be a path for you. Wow. I'm just, uh, some, sometimes I, I go through these visualizations when I, when I see people in their environment and I just see you in these different communities, just pulling your way in and saying, okay, I'm going to figure this out and feeding off the stories of the people <laughs> that you run into and then feeding off the success of it. I mean, we don't, I mean, Shark Tank is, is a great show and there's great success that germinates yeah. from that. But we know that some of those entrepreneurs were probably going to be successful anyways. But the fact that you walk into some of these rooms where people are not and you just say, look, I, I got my backpack. I got my shoes. You know, they're tied up. I'm ready to rock. And I got the right people involved in order for things to, to happen. What are some of the biggest stories that have, have come out of your firm? And what are some of the largest capital contributions and exits that you have seen that have made you proud? I mean, for some, that might be you know billion dollar exits. For others, it just might be someone getting off the street and they actually believing in themselves. Back from the early days when I was working with youth, there's a gentleman named Glenn, and when he came into the program, he was court mandated to be in this program. And I said, "Well, what's your vision for the next five to ten years?" He said, "I don't have one." He said, "Because statistically, I'm not going to be here. I'm supposed to be dead by the time I'm 18." And he was 16 at the time. I'm still in conversation with Glenn. He is an entrepreneur. His kids are an entrepreneur. He got out of the system. He got married. And he is living his best life, which is amazing for somebody who was written off clearly, but sometimes even by his own family. Fast forward, we have a woman who was a pop singer. Never thought she'd be an entrepreneur. Her mother died. Uh, her mother was an amazing cook and, and made uh, cakes. And she became close to her mom by creating gluten-free vegan cheesecakes. We met her and she was giving them away for free. She had this opportunity to go into Whole Foods. She was like, girl, I don't know anything. How am I supposed to do this? She ended up getting into Whole Foods. She had some missteps. We helped her get course corrected. And now she's in every single Whole Food up and down the East Coast. And she would have never imagined that. She's employed all women of color, some of them who've come from serving time. And it's the most diverse group. And they are rocking and rolling. And she is owning that category. We have someone, Terry, who's out of Atlanta, who decided, you know what, I don't really know anything about starting a business, but I'm sick and tired of seeing my black kids that I see in my neighborhood not thinking bigger. And so she created Brown Toy Box and she made Oprah's List and now doing all these massive media deals. And so are they all billion dollar companies yet? No, we've have had one exit of a diversity tech platform, but it, it doesn't matter, right? Like for us, wealth is not just having an exit because usually if you have an exit, that means all the investors and vultures have come in first and you ain't got nothing. And so we are laser focused on creating jobs. We've created over 3,000 jobs since we started. You know, people said, oh, half of all black businesses failed during COVID. No, I think they did what they usually do, which is they were on when they have cash and they were off when they don't. We had a 98% survival rate uh, post-COVID. Mm. And the ones that closed were because literally someone in their family had died and they had to go back to make a living. 
But I think people don't understand black entrepreneurs. You know, you sell one week and then you drive an Uber the next to get your money to buy the supplies for the next week. I mean, it is an ebb and flow. And so to me, if I can get somebody off that rat race and that wheel and get them in a stable place where they can grow their business, that's success to me. I don't need it to be a billion dollars uh, of which Uncle Sam is going to get most of it. I need our folks to have confidence, to believe they have capacity, to have a mindset around community. That's what I need. I don't need them to be more competitive and fighting against each other and thinking this we're in the onesies and only one person can be successful. We spent a lot of time talking about social capital and that entrepreneurship is a team sport and that, you know, you got to look out for each other. And, and that's what I care about. I care about that entrepreneurship is a vehicle for wealth creation, but also reinvesting in a community from where I came and I really care about. So where, where's your podcast? Because, I mean, <laughs> you need to be telling every we, single we have, one of these a stories. Friend, a friend of mine made me do it, but but it's different. So we have one called Founder Hustle, which is working with entrepreneurs. I want a full-on subscription you got to it, hear man. about every single – I mean, you, you can it. have well, you I'm going to get you on mine. 3,200 episodes. No, we could. We could. We're just starting. You know, this is not my thing, man. Like, I like to be behind the scenes. This no, no, is no, not no, my no. thing. I, you like to be behind the scenes, but you're right in the middle of the scene. You are the scene. You yeah, you are okay. the, the director, the producer. You're the narrator. You're the character. And, and you're the supporting cast. Right. I mean, you know, you have to be in that, that position in order to right. allow people to understand how great your movie yeah. will and has and, and is. You know, one of the things you, you talked about was this notion of, uh, you know, this this mindset. And and on, on our podcast, on the Pathfinders, we talk about the deal-making mindset. So so what advice do you give young people to grow their deal-making abilities? Because yeah. I think you've kind of talked about some of them, yeah. but like how do people put it all together? Yeah. Well, I think one is confidence yourself. Stop comparing and just really come to terms and sit with what do you think your strengths are and write them down. Because this whole social media frenzy, I got kids, I'm looking at like, who cares? They got a million likes. Do you even know what they do? It doesn't mean they're wealthy, right? It just means that people are following them and sometimes not for the right thing. So I think one is find confidence yourself. I think the second thing is be really clear what you're good at. Because once you're good at and, and meaning you're good at and you like it, there's nothing that's going to stop you because you will pursue that vision with just such laser focus and determination because it actually brings you joy. And so I think the second thing is find out what brings you joy. The third thing is entrepreneurship is a team sport. doesn't matter. So find mm. people that you trust, that you know got your back, not that they're going to undercut you when you get your thing and they're fighting with you, but just know it's a team sport. And in that team, hire slow and fire fast. You've got to be able to walk away from people who are toxic and not really there for you. The final thing I would say is, and be really clear, what is your goal? You know, you can meander through this life and just be anywhere and, and find yourself caught up and not where you want to be. And you hear that story of a lot of young people. But think about where you want to be. If if it's if it's basketball, then reverse engineer what does that journey look like and go talk to somebody. If it's being mm. an astronaut, figure that out that path and reverse engineer it. And really, not, not necessarily disciplined in a rigorous way, but be disciplined to at least figure out if that's really where you want to go and what is required. One of the things that we did with our youth program is that they had to do a business plan and a life plan. And I didn't really care if you started a business, but I needed you to think bigger than, okay, I'm going to be right here in this housing development, just like my grandma and just like my mom. And they had to say, what did they want to be? And we matched them up with somebody and they had to write an essay on how they could become that person. Mm -hmm. And it was transformative. For some of them, they did. For some of them, they went, oh, now that I know, that's so not what I want to do. But again, you've got to figure out like what drives your passion and not just what you brings the most money, because I can speak for myself. I have been in jobs taking those pay cuts with the administration where I have not made the most money, but in the end, I truly believe I'm one of the wealthiest people in the world because opportunities are always coming to me. 
and now people trust me to leverage their resources to invest in people who look like me, there's not a better job on earth, man. Mm. Wow. I hope everybody listening to the Pathfinders just took out a pencil and, and pen and just like wrote every single one of those step-by-step details down that Melissa just gave to you. What do you think when we think about these current social issues, you know, how do they impact deal making in your opinion? I think it's a little bit of a, a sense. I mean, it's definitely a sensitive environment, yeah. but last year was different and this year is going to be a lot different too. So yeah. how do you feel that the social environment will change the dynamic of deal making both now and into the future? The essence of my view, right? Deal making is being able to recognize that one or more parties have something in common and some kind of shared vision and we can all contribute and there's some kind of distribution of resources, whether it's money or something else. But in order for that to happen, you have to believe that you have capacity to do something wonderful and amazing. And I think post-George Floyd, I think the resources being poured in, I think the change in images that we see on television, that's a huge step, right? I mean, we, we joked a little bit, I got six kids, right? They see themselves differently post-Obama. My youngest set of kids were born during Obama. They know that there was a black president. Mm. That is very different than how I grew up. And so I think making sure that you are mindful of being aware of what opportunity means to you and being clear about what is your capacity to do so, finding people that you can align with. But I think understanding you have value, right? I mean, one of the things around all those venture capital is like, well, my company's worth this. Or my, that, you know, that valuation ain't shit, man. It ain't nothing but a mathematical number that you hope to get one day. And so we have to make sure that your the value of your business does not denote your self-worth. And so it's really important that folks understand, what am I bringing to the table? That's the most important thing in deal-making. What am I bringing to the table and what do I want to walk away with? And really take everything else off the table that's not important. Is your title important? Maybe, maybe not. Do you get a space close to the door? Maybe, maybe not. Is your name first or last in the, in the new partnership? You got to figure out what's important to you and then know what do you bring? What do you want to take away and stay focused on those two things? Don't get caught in the minutiae because then you get caught off your game. So when someone sees the valuation of their business at $1 million and another person has $100 million, some people might feel as though they're only worth that $1 million. What you're trying to teach them is that their value can be infinite. But if someone's come from an environment or someone's been surrounded by those that only think like a million dollars, how do you get them to think like $100 million or think like a billion dollar valuation? We show them people who look exactly like them who have done it whether they're athletes, whether they're business people, whether they're actors, we say, look, all these people get up every day and work hard, are very clear what their goal is, and they make it. And so you just have to figure out what's your path. I think the biggest thing is, one, helping them identify they have complete control over their path. Because for so mm -hmm. long, I think we didn't even understand what we had control over. And then the second thing is demonstrating that it's possible. And so, you know, we talk about you. We talk about Bob Johnson. We talk about, you know, Robert at Vista Equity. We talk about my boy, Charles Smith, who used to play ball. I mean, Charles Smith, right, grew up in, in Northeast. He was on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank. Like, how does a basketball player go to, I mean, you just see it, right? I mean, I had the privilege to ring the bell with a two-time Super Bowl from the Giants, and now he's a partner not that many black partners at Goldman Sachs. And so I think you've got to shift people's paradigm of say, what is not possible? What is possible? And just show folks here it is. So what are the next steps? What are the next things along the path with whether it's 1863 or just with Melissa Bradley? I mean, you, you do have the six kids, you know, yeah. you're working alongside at, at Georgetown. I mean, you have a lot of, of weight on your shoulders. And I know you have the endurance to carry more. So what do the weights look like in your near future? 
So, you know, I, I think one, to, to your point, I'm double nickel now, so I'm not going to be here forever. And so I, I'm really thinking about how do I scale? And so we, we do have two podcasts. We're thinking about how do we get involved in writing books? And they're not about me, but they're about how do you document average everyday people and how they've grown their business? How did you get from point A to point B? Who were your role models? How did you select those people? And just really putting it down. I think oral history and how we used to pass things on the porch from grandma to ma to the kids is gone because we're all desegregated all over the place. And so how do we really create these permanent memories and roadmaps that were given from our ancestors to now so that when I'm gone, my kids and everybody else's kids can say, hey, did you know entrepreneurship is a real thing for us? It is a dinner table conversation. And let's talk about it. Not like, girl, could you just go get a job or go get that good government job? But is a real viable option because they will have seen people who have done it. There will be a roadmap of how to do it. They'll have stories via podcasts on people and what they had to go through and what they had to sacrifice. And Ultimately, hopefully they'll see that at least $100 billion was created and they'll know that they can be a part of that. Well, with that $100 billion, I'm going to help you do that. We'll figure out something because, I, you know, you're in my life. I'm forever in your life. You can't get Amen. rid of me now. Hey, I'm, 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 thrilled I'm, I'm just about there. That. I'm thrilled about that, brother. So, it's an honor. As we come to the conclusion of the Pathfinders with Melissa today, one of the things we always talk about is uh, our meals and deals, right? So tell a story about your favorite deal and maybe how you celebrate it and maybe where you, where you had a meal. Yeah. yeah. Meals and deals. So I have, um, I just sold the company in July of last year and it, it was started over a meal and a deal. I had been partnering with a, with a friend who at the time was working at Facebook and we had realized that accelerators are great, but there's no scale. And so, mm. and I didn't know a lot about technology. And so we decided to team up that I knew the content side, he knew the technology side and how do we come together? And we had done some stuff informally while he was at Facebook and I was here and one day he flew across the country and said, meet me in New York City, I'll take you to dinner. I was like, great. And he knew I love good steak and some seafood. So we're sitting <laughs> around and he's like, I got a deal for you. And I was like, what kind of deal you got for me? He's like, I'm leaving my job and I want to start this new company. I want you to come with me. And I'm like, what? And I was like, this dude just walked me from a multi-million dollar job. I'm walking away from like a couple hundred thousand dollars. But he went from multi- And I was like, yo, he's serious. And so mm-hmm. we started Eureka, which was a small business platform specifically for women and people of color to help them scale their businesses. It was everything that we were doing in person at scale. And so that changed my life. One, because I never thought it would be possible to achieve that kind of scale. We ended up having over 15,000 members. We gave out over $150 million and we had an exit. Like that. And, and to me, while it was not, it didn't make the newspaper, we fundamentally shifted how people value women and people of color. The fact mm. that we had multiple purchases of a business that was laser focused on women and people of color to me was like, boom, that's a win. That meal was the best meal I ever had, literally and figuratively, because it was another step or actually leap forward in saying, how do I legitimize that women and people of color in particular are uniquely ingrained in a core part of the American economy? Mm. If you were to leave people just with one comment as it relates to your tenure in so many different arenas around two presidential campaigns, uh, exiting a business, working everywhere from low income to everyday American, black and brown men and women. What's the one thing you want everybody to be left with? Well, that's a good one. Find your joy. Find your joy. You know, I, I think the as a black woman with black boys and black girls as kids, the world is a heavy place, particularly if you're a person of color. You know, we even use analogies like, oh, you came from the bottom to the top. That's a heavy weight for somebody. And so at some point in time, like you got to enjoy life. Like you just have to find 
joy. And I'll end on this. My wife and I started a business called Black Joy, where we bought a house in Martha's Vineyard and we host retreats because even when the slaves, if you read any of their books, they found joy. That even under the greatest depression, they found joy. And I think that's what we have lost as a black community in particular. I know that's not everybody you talk to, but we've lost our joy. We are caught on this crazy ass rat wheel to like be like everybody else. And we have lost our innate God-given right to have just joy in being who we are, particularly when everybody's trying to be like us and take our culture. And so I just want everybody to find some joy. We, we deserve that and we need that. Thank you, Melissa. Thank and you, uh, I appreciate you being with me here today. A special thanks again to Melissa Bradley for being with us today and sharing how 1863 Ventures is making a difference for overlooked entrepreneurs across the country. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Onserata.